0: Live from the studio apartment, it's the Real Recovery Radio podcast. I'm Rebecca Bateson, your host. I'm a certified holistic health coach, uh, a writer, and a human on the internet. Before we start, I have to mention that the content discussed within this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for treatment or taken as professional medical advice, AKA, I'm an amateur. So a few updates before we begin today's show. Um, First of all, we're back on iTunes so that's exciting. Um, you can just go and search real recovery radio and pull up the latest one and subscribe and tell all your friends or anyone you think that may benefit from this podcast. Um, it's going to have a blue icon and say real recovery radio. It's going to have cat's name on there still. I'm working on changing the icon. Um, but for right now we'll leave cat's name on there since, uh, her husband was nice enough to make that, uh, avatar for us. Another, uh, piece of new information. Katie Berger, who was on the podcast back in February talking about her musical Full, has just announced that, the, that Full will be in New York City. So I'm going to get her back on the show and talk more about that, and hopefully we'll convince her to do maybe some co-hosting. Um, okay, so with those announcements out of the way, this week is really exciting for me because I have my favorite person in the world on the line. Uh, my mother, Bethel Bateson, she's retired living in Florida. She's a retired Lutheran minister living in Florida, and she is here with me this week to talk about a parent's perspective on a child with an eating disorder. Uh, we're going to chat a little and offer some wisdom to all the listeners who may be parents or even loved ones of those going through recovery or relapse. So without much further ado, hi mom, thanks for coming on the show. How are you this week?
1: I'm fine, Becky. Thanks
0: for asking me to participate. No problem yeah, I'm excited to have you on here. I've wanted to do this for a while um, just because I think we both have some really good insights on uh, recovery 10 years 10 years out and um, I think it'll be beneficial for the listeners too because I'm sure there's lots of other people maybe listening who uh, don't know exactly what to do or how to handle it or what's best or what to expect even So a few questions here and then we can get into some kind of discussion towards the end of the show if you want. Uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about um, about the the timeline with me, Becky. I'm going to refer to myself in the third person here, uh, and the eating and, and the eating disorder. So,
1: all right. Well, as I remember, um, after we moved from uh, our rural setting um, to the urban setting of Bridgeport, of that was a transitional time. For all of us, for the whole family. And I, I, I saw it as a very difficult time for you. And I remember getting in the car and driving you out to Barnesville just so we could listen to your favorite radio program, which Mm -hmm. we couldn't, we couldn't get where we lived there and, and the grayness of our environment and how you wanted your room painted green because there wasn't much green around us anymore. And it, it was a huge, change and so many other things change our home life Changed mm-hmm. relationship between your dad and I changed uh, between your dad and me pardon me <coughs> for you grammarians out there uh, and um I, I at first I thought you were on a diet and um that you were just trying to lose some weight and and be healthier and all that and it, it didn't worry me at first and then I saw That it was becoming like an obsession and that you were becoming less and less healthy and that, that native stubbornness that you have, which can be both good and bad in a person's personality. There are things to be stubborn about, but there were times that, that when you set your mind to do something or not to do something, um, ever since childhood, I, I thought that you were single minded in your Persistence of, uh, sticking to whatever it is that you had decided to do. And, um, and I remember the morning that I decided to take you to the doctor and, uh, get her opinion on what was going on. And that's when she, she saw too that, that you weren't healthy anymore and, uh, and that you might need to be hospitalized. And unfortunately, at that time, there were no no hospital set aside just for eating disorders. And so, even at your young age, you were put into a psychiatric facility where there were adults with significant uh, psychiatric uh, diagnoses, and you were right in the midst of that, and you were were just thirteen.
0: Mm-hmm. so yeah. That's- yeah. Nineteen ninety-six, I think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I was only permitted
1: to see you uh, under great restrictions, and just for an hour, and had to go through metal detector and be frisked. And oh goodness, it was it was trying. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, and I think most every mother in the audience can uh, sympathize with me in knowing that. He, most parents have a lot of guilt just by being parents because yeah. you, it's just because you know you don't you don't do everything right. And so um, it wasn't just my own guilt, but at that time, the psychiatric community uh, suspected parents of abusing and mistreating their children if they had this kind of eating disorder. I must have done something to you or allowed something to happen to you that had caused this kind of behavior. And so there was a lot of suspicion about what sort of a family situation you were in, Mm -hmm. which added to the guilt and pain Mm -hmm. and helplessness.
0: Right. Yes. Uh, I I think you're, you're right. Um, we were mentioning that first part there. Um, when we moved from the country to like a suburban, urban setting, um, I really, I, th- I think, at that point I kind of lost my identity because I thought of myself as like a country girl and I was taken out of the country and put in the city and I didn't know how to react. And a lot of what, you know, eating disorders are, is about you know, having identity, uh, and I had lost that. So I didn't, you know, I probably felt being a teenager for the first thing when you're trying to figure out who you are and then, uh, you know, being, being moved from a completely different environment. But you're right. Yeah. I mean, when we, the first time, you know, there at St. Francis, which I mean, it was an eating disorder unit. There were only 12 beds or 10 beds, but um, yeah, I mean, everybody not saying that that doesn't happen in family situations, Uh, specifically in ours, it was, there wasn't any huge trauma, you know, no one had died. Uh, I hadn't been abused in any way. Um, But that's not saying that that kind of stuff doesn't happen to those who, who do, um, you know, to, to do suffer from eating disorders, you know, or even anything else to any kind of other addiction. Uh, we're not saying that, you know, hey, that's not always the case, but it, sometimes it is. So
1: sure, sure. And I remember that from going through, um, the family therapy and in uh, the group therapies that there were people whose, whose life story was incredibly horrific yes. that they had suffered tremendous trauma. And I do remember that. Uh, but there's still that, that parental feeling of I must have done something to cause this. Um, and that just was a nagging feeling all the time. I was mm-hmm. examining my own um, behaviors and my own interaction with people. What did I do to push Becky to this point where she's, she's, um, Depriving herself of nutrition and, and harming her own body and mind with this. Uh, and of course you short, short circuit your, your social interactions and any kind of, of really what we would call normal life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So outside of feeling guilty, were there any other, you know, major emotions that you were feeling? And,
1: um, well, I can be stubborn too. I mean, you did get it from somewhere.
0: <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, true. Some
1: relationship there because I was stubbornly uh, uh, focused on your survival. I wasn't sure. sure how you would be healed, so to speak, how how recovery would come about. But I was determined that it's just to keep you alive until the point came where there was some sort of recovery happened. Right. But I, you now I uh, everything was focused on on making sure that you didn't die of a heart attack if start you know the mm-hmm. the effects of anorexia
0: and so in what ways were you able to, to support Becky uh, even though you know you obviously can't cure somebody or make them get better or it's not like a you know someone has the flu and you take them to the doctor you know how how did you find ways to support support me or support Becky or whatever. Well, I had to do it in (laughs) my
1: own way because certainly there were a lot of opinions out there. And of course, family can be very supportive. Family can also be um, in wanting to be helpful. And as your grandma used to say, they mean well. And Mm -hmm. of course, everyone meant well. But there were a good many opinions that somehow I could just force you in some way dragged you to the table and stuff the food down your throat or make you sit there until you did or do some sort of, of reward and punishment uh, kind of uh, uh, manipulation to get you to do what you were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so I had, there were a lot of opinions coming in from exceedingly loving and well-meaning people, but things that I simply either couldn't do or knew that with you that would only... Make you dig your heels in all the more. So I was, I was trying to be patient and loving and as supportive as I could be and to make sure that, um, you knew that you were cared about regardless of your dysfunctional behaviors that mm-hmm. you were you're still loved and sometimes I think I was an enabler, not meaning to be, mm-hmm. but sometimes I think just because I didn't want to fight mm-hmm. and I didn't want to always, you know, that some of the, you needed a way to get to the store and you needed a way to buy some of the things you wanted to and, and, and eat on certain plates and have certain uh, rituals and such. And, and I didn't, I didn't want to fight with you about that all the mm-hmm. time. I didn't want our house to always be a battleground.
0: Right. Yeah. I remember one thing you always said to me was be good to yourself. And uh, I always took that to heart because I, I think I knew deep down, you know, I did want to get better. I just didn't, I couldn't do it on my own, but I always took that to heart and tried to think about that. If I was having a tough time or, you know, if I, if I was feeling like, I mean, even, you know even when I was really bad, I, I, you know, that made me feel good because I felt like that was the right thing to say to some, somebody when you don't, you know, you don't know what else to say to them. It's a way of saying, I love you and take care of yourself, you know, uh, be good to yourself. So, um, yeah, it's I mean, I, I mean, I looking back on it now, uh, I see how, uh, awful I was, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. Uh, and how I really, you know, that what a selfish thing for me to do. Um, and t- to put you through that kind of stress and anxiety. And every day, I imagine you were thinking about me and my well-being and worrying. I mean, maybe, you know, part of you were, was able to maybe let it, let it go to a point because there's only so much you can do. But I just, uh, you know, I really... I think I empathize now because I'm able to. It was frightening. It truly was frightening. I,
1: I, I would go into your room when you were asleep or, you know, whether it was the afternoon or the evening or whatever, and look and see if you were still breathing sometimes, especially at the point where you got down to the almost skeletal Mm -hmm. in your, you just didn't have any reserves at all. And, Mm -hmm. Um, and the doctors were telling me that you were very fragile in your health, and it it really was um, very frightening. And al- almost, I would go on about my work, and I would have to go to work and earn a living and all of that. But um, you know, had you,
0: um,
1: I was thinking, what what is Becky doing, and how is she doing, and you know, are you okay, and that mm-hmm. sort
0: of thing. What kind of support did you seek out? Because obviously this is a great burden to bear and, you know, doing it on your own would be awful.
1: Well, your grandma, of course, was the the best because she had such a depth of personal faith and tremendous empathy and a very, very loving person in in the best, deepest most profound sense of the word, nothing superficial there. Uh, so that when she said, you know, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for Becky. You knew she, she mm-hmm. really meant it. Yeah. And it wasn't going to be just a little sentence prayer. You know, grandma was going to be on her knees with, you know, growing mm-hmm. calluses, praying for you and in a, in a most loving kind of way. And uh, so, you know, your grandma's love and support uh, was just tremendous. Um, what a, what a, a remarkable person. And your cousin Christy. Yeah. Uh, not that she had a great, you know, psychological depth of understanding about it, but she was always there for me. She mm-hmm. was, she was willing to, uh, give me basically what I guess you'd call respite care. When I had come to the end of my rope and it was like, I, I just need a break. I just need a break. I cannot stand to hear that, that, uh, <sighs> microwave, microwave. Uh, yeah. slam 10, 15 times in a row and see that, that the, the food just toasted to oblivion um, that uh, I just needed a break. Christy would say, well, have Becky fly over to Chicago and she can stay two or three days with me and be like, oh, OK. You know, just because I needed a break from that stress and the anxiety and knowing that you were safe. And that you were in a good atmosphere and maybe it was a break for you too. I hope so. Uh, But I appreciate your state Um, because I knew she wasn't going to lecture you. She wasn't going to, to try to, you know, do some kind of chore on you. She was just going to be a cousin and be there.
0: Yeah. And I always looked up to her too. So I think that was good to spend time with her because I really respect her and looked up to her because she's kind of like the sister I never had, but. Um, did you, you said you went to some support groups at some point?
1: Um, yeah, it was mostly, um, really my, I had a good relationship with the area pastors Mm -hmm. and with some of the lay people that we got together, uh, on a, a, uh, every week and they all knew my concern for you and what your diagnosis was and such. And so they were good listeners uh, and they were the kind of, you know, put their arms around my shoulder and say, you know, just hang in there, you know, she's going to get, she's going to recover. It's going to be okay. And, and one of those persons was the Catholic priest who came to visit you, oh, you yeah. at w, you know, WPIC. Uh,
0: yeah. There was one that came and visited me in Philadelphia too. He was really yeah. nice.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so, uh, with you mentioning all that, how does faith play a role in yours and Becky's recovery. Uh, maybe not all of our listeners have faith, but I know a lot of, uh, you know, if you look at 12 step or things like that, mm-hmm. you know, obviously that's faith-based in some way. So, I mean, if if you guys haven't caught on yet, I mean, my mom's a minister, so faith plays a huge role, but maybe if you want to expand on that a little bit more, just for well,
1: us. Yeah, I think when I when I talk to other people, I always have a sense that I want, in some way, to protect myself and not maybe show any signs of despair or uh, any selfishness or anything on my part that would be would make me look bad. I guess I'm just normal human that way. I want right. to look the best I can to my fellow human beings, but with God, I can be totally honest because I. What's the point of lying <laughs> with we well, caught God already Yeah. I mean it just doesn't yeah. no point <laughs> and so I could uh cry out with wholehearted, you know, whether it was a very selfish prayer or whether it was just a, a kind of a a cry for help. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the honesty, the ability to be totally honest and to lay it all out there and um, to feel um, listened to and uh cared about and uh and that belief that um that i knew that you were precious in god's sight and so that made me know that as a parent if i loved you how much more god so Mm -hmm. that gave me courage there too knowing that that uh he wasn't going to let you waste your life
0: yes um, I know that, you know, for me speaking on that, uh, in terms of faith playing a role of my recovery, it's not something I've talked about a lot on this podcast, but, um, I believe at least for Muda, I think that was the main one that was the faith-based treatment center. Um, and I, uh, really held on to I think if I hadn't had those two experiences at Remuda, because we had you know we had chapel every day, kind of like going to camp, basically. You know, you have horses and you're out in the desert, and you you sing praise and worship worship songs, and you pray and things like that. Um, But really, if I hadn't had that, I don't think I would have held on maybe as long, just because I always because when you're in the recovery process, when you're going through the trenches, so to speak, when you're trying to get better and There was a lot of really alone time there, and that was the one thing that really brought me a lot of comfort because I didn't feel alone uh, when I was able to, you know, either be in worship, or uh, be in nature, or be in prayer, or listen to music, which was really big for me. I listened to a lot of uh, probably like I guess we could call them contemporary Christian artists, things like bands like Jars of Clay and Bebo Norman and things like that, and that really brought me a lot of comfort and really made me feel like everything was going to be okay and that you know I wasn't I wasn't a bad person for being you know being in rehab or whatever so uh for me with that was really um a a a really important part and then when I finally went my last stint of treatment down in Florida down in uh <clears throat> Renfrew down in Florida I uh, I read The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren and that book really was uh a good tool to kind of get me on my feet because i was at a place where i was ready to live my life again and uh that book was really important for for giving me some kind of goal i guess in a way you know in a way that really made me feel like it's not all meaningless this isn't you don't have to end up like this your life has a purpose it has a meaning you are here for a reason And I think that was really a big part of me just wanting to do the work and get out and move on.
1: That same determination that was so destructive when you were intent on your, your routines and behaviors in the anorexia, that same personality, I think a person is who they are in a sense. I mean, you're not, you are not Rebecca the anorexic. Right. You are, but your personality is, I think, From the from the womb, you you come out with certain personality traits, Mm -hmm. and one of yours has been determination. And when you came out of um, Renfrew and you came home, was it February? Early February, wasn't it? Yeah, January, early
0: February. It must have been the end of January, beginning of February, because I think I missed a week or so of classes at Bethany, but they let me back.
1: Well, and you're I don't know if you recall every part of that, but I certainly do because. We were on our way back from the airport when you said, take me to Bethany. And when we went there, the admissions person said it's too late. So you went to talk to the next person up the ladder and they said it's too late. And so you went above that person. I don't know if you went to the dean or the president, but you went as far as you could go. and said, Basically, give me a chance. I can make up this time. I can do it. I'm determined. I'm not going to go home to my, you know, to my bedroom and, and do crossword puzzles. I'm going to live. And there's been a theme, I think, in in some of the things that you've shared, a theme of, of painful loneliness and how isolated you are when you're in the midst of these kind of things. And and getting into that social, with being the person you really are. And mm-hmm. from the very beginning, from your infancy and childhood, you were a very interactive, extroverted kind of person, someone who interacted with other people. And once you got into that situation, it wasn't perfect, but you worked your way back into who you really are mm-hmm. and began to have those very, very important healthy social interactions and have that extended uh Family through through sorority through school friends you know Mm -hmm. university and that and you began to regain your health in every way uh, physical emotional spiritual the whole
0: whole thing yeah that's one thing I talked about in the podcast last week was fellowship was extremely important for me and still is important for me continuing because I have to have to quiet the introvert inside of me and say no you actually do get energy from hanging out with other people and you do you know this allows you to you know uh, practice these you know these things that sometimes make me anxious but are really healing in a lot of ways yeah I mean I I don't really remember the going back to, to Bethany and being that determined to get back but um, I am grateful I did I uh, I had I, my experience at Bethany is even though I did pay money for it, is invaluable.
1: <laughs> well, and and
0: when you graduated, it was
1: I believe either the dean or the president. I'm sorry, I can't recall which. It came to me at that time when we were standing out there in that front of the building, uh-huh. and was an old main or it's whatever. Maine. Yeah, and said that he, when he saw your determination, he thought that you would graduate well and do well, and oh. that his <laughs> and that you
0: lived up to his expectations. Oh, that must have been. Uh, we had a really good president at that time. He, yeah,
1: he is really personable.
0: He, yeah, he worked for a dollar. He didn't. They didn't pay. Him, they didn't pay him anything. He worked for free, pretty much. He's a good guy. Um, anyway, getting off topic there. Um, kind of to wrap things up here because we're coming up on a half hour. Um, so what is some advice that you would give to parents or loved ones of those? You know, of uh, those who are near people or loving people who have baby eating disorder uh, or even chronic dieting habits or exercise addiction or anything along those lines?
1: Well, be patient and loving toward the the family member who is struggling uh, and make sure you have support yourself. Mm -hmm. Make sure that you don't go through it alone. Uh, Find people that will listen and will not grow tired of listening over and over again. It's much like grieving. It's this, you. Sometimes you need to just tell the same story over and over again, mm-hmm. and know that you have somebody who loves you enough to listen, yeah. and not to try to fix you. You know, just be there and listen and be caring. Um, and so, uh and take every opportunity to, you know, there's a lot of there are there's a lot of help out there, and to not to, try to, to go through it alone.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think. That's good advice for sure. Um, All right, well, that's the end of my questions that I have for you. So, all
1: right, Becky. Well, I love you, and I'm proud of you, and um, um, I've always thought that you were and are an extraordinary person, and I'm so glad you have recovered, and you have health, and you have vitality, and you have good friends, and you are the person that I always knew you were. Sometimes it just got covered up with some, some pain yeah, and some isolation.
0: All right. Well, thanks for being here today, mom. I hope you have a good rest of your day and I will talk to you soon. All right, dear.
1: Bye. Bye.